My name is David, and this is The Big Shut-In. Today is Tuesday, the 14th of July, day 122 since I began social distancing. And my conversation today was with Joshua Schiffer, who is one of my oldest friends. Uh, We actually met at the bus stop in Roswell, Georgia, when I was entering first grade and he was entering second. So that was a number of years ago. And in the decades since, Josh has become a very well-respected attorney in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. He does criminal defense work and personal injury and civil rights work. And he's a heck of a smart guy and has his fingers on a lot of pulses and a lot to say about a lot of things. And I wanted to talk to him for two reasons. One was to get a view from Georgia and what it's like down there right now and what's going on down there right now. And also to get a view of what criminal justice looks like right now, which is, an I think, an underreported problem in the country, that there's been a massive shutdown of criminal justice infrastructure because of quarantine. So it was, it was a great conversation. It was a very wide-ranging conversation. I cut it down a bit so you're not listening to us talk for an hour and a half, but I think even from what I left in, you know, we, we really got to a lot of important things and a lot of interesting things. And so I'll shut up now and get right to it. Here is Josh. How you doing? It's it's kind of wild around here. What do you see? I mean, are you you're not going into the office, right? You're you're working. Oh no, room. we go to the office. We have I've got a new normal that has a very calculated risk involved. Um, we have a nicely sealed office in a nice building. Uh, where we have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six people that work in our office. Um, and we all take very close watch of each other because there are so many kids and other fragile people involved. Every person in our office, save one, has a medically fragile person directly attached to them. Um, there's strict mask wearing and things like that. We are happy to send people home if they think there's something going on. Um, but we don't accept appointments. We don't let you come in. Uh, it's very strict. And then in our personal lives, my personal bubble is my daughter, my ex-wife, my girlfriend, and that's it. I go to the grocery store once a week. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Other people that were wandering around like nothing wild going on. Uh, well, that, that was my question. Week, what do you see? What do you yeah. see around you? Are people uh, wearing masks? Are they not? Are they? Uh, until last week, mask use was at 20, 30%. Now it's probably 70, 75% when I go out and about. But um, still only def- 75 Definite uptick. Not 90. Yeah, no, it's, it, it's not universal. It's nowhere near 90. I went by the grocery store today and 
vast majority of people, but then on the way out, you see the, you know, two young couple people walking, just, you know, hanging out. I'm like, man, that, that is just not smart. And the stupidity of youth is valid. I was young. I know how dumb you are. From here, the view right now of Georgia, from where I'm sitting in New York City, is a state that is refusing to acknowledge reality and is making decisions, actively making decisions that are jeopardizing the lives of everyone who lives there and by extension us. That, that's the news about Georgia from here. And I'm it, curious. It accurately, yeah, accurately reflects our political leaders. <laughs> well, I, 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 Governor Kemp, uh, I disagree with him on lots of things, especially with this coronavirus. Um, he has stuck his head in the sand. He has instructed the state to be as challenging and difficult as possible with some of the numbers. The fact that we close our testing at outrageous times, that we've had problems with our numbers since the very beginning and refuse to uh, honestly deal with the extent of this, the refusal to take it seriously at the beginning. Um, he made great political hay with opening up early and he was going to be a conservative stalwart. But guess what happened? Opening up early led to a giant spike. Uh, luckily, Mr. Kemp has kind of kept his head low here as Florida and Texas and Mississippi have started blowing us out of the water numbers wise. Um, but our, my, I'm not proud of my state level response. It, it still frustrates me that we didn't shut down for 45 days or 60 days back in April, and we would have nipped this in the bud the way that so many other countries did. Yeah, no, it's, I'm, I'm angry every day about that. Yeah, I, like I, it, it, it infuriates. I know people who have died. I know people who are sick currently. So how is business right now for you guys? So I start the shutdown with this, you know, fully functioning, roaring business. But the core of my practice, <clears throat> which was mostly criminal defense related, we can't go to court. You know, the, um, the judges in Georgia, after a couple of untimely deaths, finally decided to really shut down everything crank down and make sure that people are safe because some judges and courts were doing really well with it and, and really only doing necessary stuff. But some of them flagrantly uh, disobeyed the, the rules from the Supreme Court of Georgia and were requiring people to go to court. Uh, and cops have stopped arresting people, at least in the major metro areas of Georgia. I live in downtown Atlanta. So what does that mean? I mean, do, do, are there people sitting in jail because they're yep. not getting a court date? Rotting. Uh, that's all across the nation. Um, when the courts stop, there are still some mandatory and necessary functions, but the courts get to decide what those are. And some courts feel certain things are mandatory and some courts feel that others aren't. And Outside of a couple of rare occasions, almost all criminal trials have been stopped. Um, 
you can't get a jury. You can't ask a jury to show up and risk their lives. And even if you did, would that jury be sitting voluntarily and willingly and, uh, you know, in a position to make a judgment or are they worried about getting home? So it's impossible right now to have a jury trial. Not that a couple courts aren't trying, but it is virtually impossible to have a legitimate jury trial right well, there's that begs the question, is it virtually possible? Can it be done remotely somehow? Well, so you're hitting on something that a lot of lawyers are beating their heads against the wall with right now. You have a right in the Constitution to be present. You have a right in the Constitution, specifically in the Sixth Amendment, um, to face your accuser. There is something inherently unique and special and ephemeral and irreplaceable that goes along with physical presence. And this emergency, the corona emergency, has forced courts to really deal with that. Um, It is one thing to do minor procedural hearings and things like that uh, remotely. For a long time, courts have used video links to set bonds and do certain minor things primarily where it was just the judge and the defendant interacting with with prosecutors and defense attorneys. But the moment you get into real hearings, you can't replace that. At least I feel very strongly you can't replace that. Many other lawyers, in fact, most are of the opinion that virtual does not substitute adequately for in-person confrontation rights. And that obviously stops everything. Uh, Right now, we are backed up with people locked up. The jails are bursting. They're hugely dangerous places to be, as are the prisons. And uh, there's a lot of bad stuff that's happening. It's it's really sad. We we get a call a day or two calls a day about people sick in prisons or jails, and there's no remedy for that. To be clear here, we're talking about people who are not have not been found to be guilty of a crime. Uh, These are people yeah, who, men, who have been arrested, arraigned, but are no, waiting not their even day in court. Not even arraigned. Right. Um, in most states, you get arrested, and if you, you go for some sort of bond or pretrial release, of which you can either make or you can't, and if you can't, you sit in jail. That is pre-indictment prior to your case being presented to a grand jury. Uh, And then all the discovery and litigation needs to go forward while you're sitting in jail. Uh, You've not been convicted. You are specifically reserving your right to go to trial. Uh, And that's when they're getting exposed. And and jails have a rapidly changing interior population. So there's a lot of people from the streets coming in and a lot of people checking in and out of the jail because they're there for minor stuff. So how, how long has it been since you've been to a proper trial? Oh, uh, since prior to COVID. There's been, I'm trying to think, I've gone to less than five in-person court appearances, and I've had 10 or 15 in virtual four, appearances in four and a half months we're talking about something like that yeah yeah and just for just for contrast how many would you have normally gone to in that time oh uh five to ten a week 
So, yeah, no, this is an absolute grinding, yeah, grinding halt, grinding halt. And plus, people aren't hiring lawyers. A lot of people don't hire lawyers until their court date is pending. Uh, you either hire a lawyer immediately after you get arrested, or you hire a lawyer when you actually have to go to court. And since no one is getting a notice saying come to court, no one's hiring lawyers. I, you said something else that I, I want to pull the pin out of, as if it were a grenade. Yeah. Um, which is, you said the police aren't arresting people right now. Yeah. What does that mean? It's, well, it's a really different law enforcement environment right now. Uh, lots of major cities are having problems with their police force in general. I, you um, know, funny story I noticed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, and it's been interesting to see how the community has reacted. First of all, there was the community in shutdown, but then with all of the civil rights issues and the social unrest, that's highlighted what police do in communities. And there's been an uptick of certain types of crimes, but police are so stretched, they don't want to bring people to jail for minor crimes. So many arrests are for little misdemeanors. Why is an officer going to threaten someone's life on a misdemeanor when they can give them a, a ticket? Well, that's, so been the whole, ticket. that's been the whole question, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It'll... <laughs> The statistical analysis afterward is going to be fascinating, whether people show up and are responsible or whether people don't. But uh, different kinds of crimes have changed. I know there's been an uptick on gun-related crimes because people aren't seeing the social framework that uh, allowed people to rely on the safety of public police. So we've had an uptick in shootings. I think that's been registered pretty much nationwide. And that may be because people are acting a little bit more vigilante than they used to. But I mean, when you said, so that's an interesting sort of cycle is that if this is a a, a huge oversimplification of the protests, but, but one of the core tenets of what's being protested is the police are arresting too many people. Um, Yeah. Uh, The over criminalization of society. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Um, and if because of all of this, they're arresting fewer people, it's achieving a goal in a way. It's, it's proving the, the point of the protest. You know, so much of politics is fear based. It's, oh, if you don't vote <laughs> particularly for this, now. Yeah. Yeah. Particularly now. It's, it's this existential threat of bad happening to you unless there's this. Uh, armed force protecting you from the bad. It's this siege mentality that the world is going to gotcha if you don't have a bunch of police officers, when really the last 30, 40 years of policing has been heavily dedicated towards the war on drugs, which influenced the rest of policing because that's where the money was. Most of the gun violence is related to the war on drugs. Our traffic code is related to the war on drugs because officers are basically trained that a speeding ticket is a doorway to a search. And then they're trained. Who should you search? Well, you should search people with this kind of behavior, dog whistle racism. And then you've got every police citizen encounter for certain classes of people being public safety minded and every police citizen encounter of another 
group of people being, oh my God, they want to rifle through all my stuff and find a way to lock me up. And after generations of that, it changes how your community re reacts to police. Uh, and I think that with this reduced number of arrests, we're proving that the siege mentality is a false creation. This, the, the world doesn't fall apart. The, the society doesn't burst just because the police aren't running speed traps. Uh, and the idea of reimagining police is taking hold. I truly dislike the concept of defund the police. It is a terrible catchphrase. They needed far better PR and marketing because it's not defunding the police. It's reimagining and repurposing and, and, and rededicating the police to a different concept, that being the safety of the community. Go back to protect and serve. Uh, and protect and serve isn't going out and creating criminals. And that's the war on drugs. The war on drugs was was criminalizing peddling. And peddling and being a tinker trader is something that goes back in every culture for 5,000 years. Well, and that's, I, the last several years, you know, being a, an entrepreneur of sorts and, and sort of running in entrepreneurial circles, you see a lot of kind of unpleasant young white men in suits mm -hmm. talking about how they're making moves in the cannabis industry. Oh yeah. And I, <laughs> it's just fascinating how there's, you know, two or three entire generations of black and brown men in prison for making oh, moves yeah. in the cannabis industry. Uh, I have a and New now, Yorker currently serving five years, mandatory minimum in a Georgia prison for just straight up marijuana trafficking on an airplane where he got paid a small amount of money to fly the suitcase from one place to another place. And when he got there, it was pretty obvious what was in the suitcase. The organized crime people put 10 people on the same plane with 10 sacks of dope and they know one of them's going to get popped. And as the, everybody runs around the one getting popped, the other nine walk right through and with the profit margins they're talking about, it makes it very financially lucrative. But he's literally sucking up thirty to fifty thousand dollars in taxpayer funds and having a torturous life as a late forties, early fifties black male with no record, whose first big hit happened to be ninety pounds of weed. And ninety pounds of weed sounds like a lot till you realize we're going to spend over a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars keeping him off the streets. He had no priors. It was nonviolent. The amount of money that he stood to make was ridiculously small. We're talking a few grand. And what's the purpose of that? What did society get from that mandatory minimum that the judge could not legally give less time on? That that is to me mind numbing because at the same time I can buy a marijuana stock on the stock market. And <laughs> it it's mind numbing. Well and, and to that's... see how racially set up it is, it's it's incredibly frustrating. And now Well that's 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 the contention. That that's what it seems to me Black Lives Black Lives Matter is is attempting to do is answer that rhetorical question you just asked. 
which is the reason for that was to was to control black people and instill yeah. fear in the black community. That was the function of that. And, and I think would that you agree that with that point, analysis? Do you think that's behind that? What that was for? So I believe that the institutional racism um, absolutely exists and is behind class divisions and race division. It, it is my absolute con or, or, or confirmed belief that upper classes, specifically oligarchies and the super influential, uh, will always use the system to support themselves. And that includes the natural oppression of the weak. I'm not saying that being rich makes you automatically racist, but remaining rich means that you are involved in supporting a system that separates, divides, and oppresses The war on drugs and the institutional racism is one product of that overarching class analysis. Um, because I don't think it's humanity's natural run to racism, because it's, but it's certainly present in countries where there's a racial disparity, then you go look at countries without a racial disparity and you see the same thing among a demographically contiguous racial group, but it, it, it still has the hallmarks of oppression. It's the serfs in Russia. The vast majority of the serfs in Russia looked just like the aristocracy. Same with Britain. Uh, once you introduce race, it just becomes another tool of the system to create an oppressive dynamic. And once that oppressive dynamic is going, anybody participating at the top end is, is enforcing that dynamic, and racism fits into that. As soon as the FBI and the, the criminal justice system realize that holding down minorities with voting rights and lack of civil rights and Jim Crow laws wasn't working, they replaced it with the naturally evolving war on drugs. We would recognize it as being clearly racist, but they genuinely believed that they were doing, you know, the Lord's work. Did they? It's, it's the banality of evil that Hannah Arendt, oh, the people in law enforcement are dearly convinced they're doing the right thing. Absolutely. Still? Oh, yeah. Oh, true believers through and through. That's the thing that people don't understand about criminal law. It's not like you're explaining the defense to someone who understands the defense. You're explaining the defense who looks at your client and believes the solution is to lock them away and strip them of their humanity. Like, you'll meet drug prosecutors whose whole life is, oh, he dealt in weed. We need to remove him from society forever, and I am saving the world, locking this person up. And I, I struggle with that. I realized I can't change their mind by arguing. And if you're explaining to them, you're losing. You got to show them that they're wrong. And that, that unfortunately takes a long time and doesn't necessarily help your client at that moment. Uh, but there, there are true deep believers that the war on drugs is a calling. It's like manifest destiny. And that's what makes you American. Um, do you think they're 
you know, and I, I know, I know from being a dedicated follower of your Facebook page that you have friends, acquaintances, correspondents from every every color on the political spectrum. Yeah, <laughs> and I do. You think, you know, aside from the kind of creative haven of Black Atlanta. You know, George is about as deep deep red as as a state can get. Do do you do you see? Do you think the protests are doing any good down there? Do you think people oh, the, are, people the, are being convinced? The needles, the needles moving. Um, I don't think it's a good bad spectrum as much as is their movement. Um, Georgia has been did for I a say long good, time. Did I say good bad? I don't think I did. And I and well, you said are the protesters doing any good? And, oh, I mean, are they working? Are they effective? Yeah, and that's what I was saying, is the needle's moving. Um, we've had some police reform. Let's see if it sticks. We've had appropriate responses from politicians. Let's see if they act and don't just talk. We have a series of elections occurring during the protest, including our district attorney, uh, who has played some real dirty politics with how he is prosecuting police officers and acting like he's this big police accountability guy with any uh, where everybody that knows him realizes he's soft peddled and gaslighted and sandbagged every major police prosecution for 15 years um but he's in the race of his life against a very strong opponent and he has suddenly decided to change his tact and become a friend of the people progressive prosecutor, uh, which is garbage, but it works politically. Um, Georgia is more purple than it was a year ago and certainly more purple than it was five years ago. Uh, I won't be surprised if leftish, leftward gains continue. Um, the GOP in the Southeast is losing a fractured, there's a lot of interior warfare over what the party is uh and trump isn't helping them i mean um, thank god there there's warfare i mean it, it, I, i'm very glad to hear that well that, now that there are people within for, the republic republican party who are saying this is not <laughs> this is not what we're supposed to be about well yeah. as trump has gone more and more jumping the shark it provides political cover for people that were too scared to say never Trumper earlier, but are now going, all right, guys, really? Come on now. Now he's now he's just trolling us. I feel like um, shark, and, Trump is the shark. People yeah. jump him. <laughs> well, and, and remember, the elections come down to a very small number of important people. It's swing people. It's people that can be affected. You're talking about most political education and voter movements are targeted um, at it, for changing votes and making people decide at this middle 10% of America. Uh, the rest of people, though the rest of the election is all about voter turnout. And you need to motivate voters for them to get up off their butt and actually exercise their right to vote. Uh, and the best way of doing that is a combination of incentives and fear. And you see that from the different political parties. Trump is going to continue beating the drum of, oh, my God, America's going to get destroyed. And look, they're destroying it in front of you. And I'm actually normal. 
It's them that are wrong. And that gins up a lot of people. Uh, it doesn't get people who are moderate Republicans to go support a guy that they probably find pretty distasteful. Do you ever uh, wonder about undecided voters? I think about undecided voters a lot. Yeah. That like I can I, see, I think it's I think it's horrible, but I can understand being an overt white supremacist hard right wing you know yeah an idea neo-nazi i can see that yeah. i can understand the set of decisions you would have to make in your brain to 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 come to that horrible conclusion but to be on the fence at this point to be sitting I, there and thinking like looking at donald trump and saying well i don't know that's because <laughs> apathy is hard to understand uh, it's not caring that's really what it, yeah. most undecided voters, they, all right, so I've known you for a long time. I know the family you come out of. I know the values that they had. You always cared. And your family was always caring about what was going on. There are a lot of families where that doesn't exist. There's a lot of families out there where politics is absolutely foreign to them because they've never exercised a political voice. And there are people who are just too selfish to really care. Go talk to people about what they actually know about politics. You're yeah. hyper aware because you're an educated guy who's comes from an education as important background and what's going on in the world really matters because it affects you and you're a critical thinker. Imagine not being that. Imagine growing up thinking that politics is something for somebody else. Government is something for somebody else. None of this relates to you. Your job is to, and I'm just pulling this out of the air, uh, go to church or raise a family or something that is so dominant that you just don't have space for politics. And you never had that as part of the context of being raised. It's pretty easy to think about not voting. I know tons of people that don't vote, and it blows my mind. I think it's super important but they just don't put value in changing or being a political speaker. And whose fault is that? Or is their fault to be assigned? Can't blame someone for choosing to be apathetic. Sure can't I blame can. Some... Sure I can. Well, I absolutely can. Watch well, me. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, uh, you, you, it, it, I think, I think I, apathy is often the worst sin. That someone yeah, can no, I, I, I agree. Refusing to stand of, up and, and doing what needs to be done or doing what's right because you just can't be bothered. That's, yeah, I no, I can absolutely blame someone for that. Yeah, I, I think it's horrible, but how do you get them involved? You know, is it our, I, I guess it's kind of our duty to get them involved in, in political life, but it can be a hard sell. Yeah. But back to the moving the needle. What I think is interesting is how the conversation nationally has developed. The idea of changing what the police should do. That conversation didn't exist prior to the most recent set of uprisings. And now it does. Well, let's end there. That was well, great. There you go. You I'll talk great, to you man. whenever you want, buddy. My name is David Hoffman, and this is The Big Shut-In. I produce the show. It's a production of Race Car Radio, racecarradio.com. 
if you have feedback for me or you have a story that you think I should hear, please feel free to reach out, thebigshutin at racecarradio.com. Race Car Radio is a division of Citizen Race Car, Applied Imagination. <laughs>